Welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast as we continue our conversation on the subject of local content policies in mineral oil and gas projects. Today my guest is Peter Lian. Peter is an accomplished lawyer in Johannesburg, South Africa. Peter is also a partner and the Africa co-chair at the global law firm Herbert Smith Freehills. During the last decade, Peter has been recognized among the international who is who of mining lawyers, best lawyer, legal 500, chamber and partners, among others. Peter's areas of expertise include crisis management, resource nationalism, mineral and petroleum regulation in developing countries, including international best practice, among others. Peter, it's a pleasure to have you. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you very much, Sheila, and delighted to be with you, and thank you for the opportunity. That's lovely. So let's cut to the chase. My first question to you is this. Some researchers argue that in the strictest sense of the word, countries that have bilateral treaties may risk offending these pre-arrangements in case of prescriptive requirements embedded in local content. Could you please shed some light onto this, especially how this comes to be? Well, uh, that's this is a major issue now for developing countries. As you may know, Sheila, South Africa actually terminated its bilateral investment treaties with all the European Union members plus the UK and Switzerland because the government thought this is now nearly 10 years ago, uh, 2009, 2010, 2011, that would hamper the government's policy of black economic empowerment. And the reason they thought so is because of the way these bilateral investment treaties are framed with very broad language, particularly around fair and equitable treatment of investors, non-discrimination on the grounds of nationality, uh, most favored nation principles, and the rest of it. And uh, that has a sort of resonance in Latin America where some countries in in sort of the north northwest of latin america like bolivia venezuela and and ecuador have had similar issues with their bits and one of the arguments for developing countries is that bits constrain a government's policy space too much the other thing is that you know when investors invest in a country they do so on the basis of the regulatory regime which existed at that time And when the government changes the rules of the game, that can trigger a claim under fair and equitable treatment. Not expropriation, but fair and equitable treatment and non-discrimination. So those are the the real issues. And so we've seen a development in in, in this region, in in SADC, the Southern African Development Community, where the SADC Protocol on Finance and Investment, which was very much driven during Thabo Mbeki's presidency and his huge influence in the region, was really followed bilateral investment treaty principles, but under the Zuma administration, the South African government engineered an amendment to the protocol on finance and investment, which is, in my view, rendered it largely toothless because fair and equitable treatment has disappeared. There's a requirement to exhaust local remedies, which is very detailed. And uh, I don't think the static program on finance investment is, is actually of, of very, very much use or substance. What the government here did is because they were pushing a promotion of investment act or bill at that time through parliament, they realized that the bill was out of kilter with the protocol. Normally, as you will appreciate and know very well, she 
uh, countries should follow international law. What the South African government did under President Zuma and his administration was get the other members of SADC, and I'm surprised some of them went along with it, to agree to amend the protocol so that the South African law was not in violation of it, which is, I mean, a complete inversion of international law. But anyway, I've answered your question a, a long way around, but clearly local content policies which are introduced if a BIT is in existence can potentially trigger a BIT claim. And as you know very well, and you were very involved in it, Tanzania in the last few years has not only changed its mining code, it's also uh, substantially changed its local content policies, which go way beyond issues of procurement and require local shareholdings, Tanzanian shareholding, investment ownership and the, and the rest of it is sort of, in other words, a sort of Tanzanian form of BE. So I think Tanzania is actually vulnerable to an attack on its procurement policies, its local content policies in relation to bilateral investment treaties, which, which are already in existence. And as you know, Tanzania has had a number of BIT claims against it, most of which it's lost. So the existence of a bilateral investment treaty uh, and a new local content policy can often be in conflict uh, and governments need to be very careful. I don't think they are, frankly, about making sure that whatever they do in terms of domestic law complies with the international law obligations. And I think a number of African countries have been quite careless about this. I know I'm jumping ahead, but as you well know, Sheila, I mean, a lot of this is driven by the African mining vision, which again is about 10 years old, uh, which really, you know, talked about all these linkages that the mining industry had to bring about, not just downstream, but upstream and sidestream and the rest of it. And I think a lot of this drive around local contents, not just driven by resource nationalism, which I think is a factor, but it's driven by what's in the African mining vision. Sure. So listening to you, I, I detect several sources of tension and I, I wanted us to use your response to revisit these. So in the first instance, we live in a global world in which there are certain global dispensations that sovereign states sign on to, and BITs are a case in point. Mm. On the other hand, we have sovereign states that argue self-determination, which is to say the freedom to exercise sovereign rights. When I listen to you, my sense is that this is really where the challenge is. And, and I wanted to get a sense of from you of how can we strike this balance where developing countries don't feel that their sovereign rights in terms of the right yeah. to legislate are secondary to international dispensation? No, look, it's a very, very good question. So there's been a lot of, I mean, there's in, in, in the international law world, there's now a, a much greater recognition of giving developing countries more policy space to regulate because I think the way these bilateral investment treaties were originally drafted, and we're talking, you know, more than 20 years ago, severely constrained the policy stay, uh, space of developing countries. And I think the COVID pandemics also brought this to the fore. So there's now a lot of work, for example, in UNCITRAL uh, working group three on reform of international investment law. Even they're very interesting. I mean, the European Commission is is also very alive to this issue because I mean there was a the Achmer case in in the European Union where basically the European Court of Justice said that intra-European EU bilateral investment treaties were prohibited. Um, but leave that as a side. I mean, I think the European Commission have picked up another issue with these 
bilateral investment treaties, and that is that what you have is ad hoc tribunals of normally three arbitrators, one appointed by each party and the parties agreeing on the chairman or then the arbitral institution agreeing, appointing the chairman if the parties can't agree. But often, you know, the people who appear as counsel in these cases also land up as arbitrators. So there's a potential conflict of interest. So the European Commission have now proposed and are busy implementing uh, in due course an investment court, uh, a standing investment court with an appeal mechanism, an appellate court to deal with bilateral investment treaty claims because of the concerns that many NGOs and others have about the relationship between counsel in these cases and the arbitrators and the fact that there's too much of an, an open door between them. But I think, you know, coming back to the real issue you're asking me about in terms of policy space, the, the, the some of the more modern bilateral investment treaties, some involving African countries themselves, are according much greater policy space to developing countries to allow them to regulate properly in the public interest. So that that is happening. And, I, you know, I think, and I'm coming back to South Africa, I think that's the mistake the South African government did, because it, what it did is it threw the baby out with the bathwater. It, it terminated all its BITs with the European Union. But of course, what they forgot is that most of these BITs have a, a long tail. They they continue for 20 years, up to 20 years after termination. So somebody could still bring a claim for an investment which was made before the BIT was terminated. What the South African government should have done, didn't do, it actually said they would do this, but they never did it, was ask the members of the European Union to revisit the BITs and amend them to give the government the policy space to promote black economic empowerment, which is a uh, you know an issue under our constitution and given South Africa's apartheid past, which is perfectly legitimate. They didn't do that. So South Africa is uh, maybe an exception. But I think what you're beginning to see, Sheila, in, in more modern bilateral investment treaties is a much greater respect for a country's policy space. Because the other issue one can't ignore is, I mean, is international trade law. Because if governments start discriminating, African governments we're talking now about, but any developing country government starts discriminating against foreign providers of goods and services, they could be they could be potentially breaching the general agreement on trade and services, which is part of the World Trade Organization agreements, which came into force back in 1994-1995. So that, that's another issue, international trade law, which is obviously distinct from international investment law. So, I mean, you know, there's, I, I, I'm a great believer, and I've said this to the government here, in country, you should respect a country's policy space, you should also respect international law, the two are not mutually inconsistent. And it's going to be very interesting, Sheila, what happens with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, because as you know, that is due to finally come into force next January, all being well, it's not certain, but looks like it. That's going to have an investment protocol. And the question then is, what's going to go into the investment protocol? Is, is the African Union going to respect international law and allow investment claims for breach of promises? Or is it going to make life as difficult as possible for investors and go the route of the amendment to the static protocol on finance investment? We don't know the answer to that because the investment protocol hasn't been agreed. But it is an issue obviously for the secretariat of the free trade agreement now, now residing in, in Accra. 
So as I listened to you, I realized the naivety of my question because I, I thought that there was one issue, but it turns out that in doing so, I opened Pandora's book. And, and, and here's what I'm seeing and hearing from you is, is that one, not only do we have multiple international instruments that have to be reconciled when we develop these policies, but also we have to think about how easy or feasible it is to implement because in listening to you about the adjudication of these uh, cases and the way people are appointed, I sense that it's not really a perfect environment. And, and so my question to you in light of that is, what are we left with in the local content space? Are we left in the end with the notion that local content isn't feasible? Or are we saying local content is feasible, but this is the context and if so what would the context be peter no look i i i think this is a strong case for local content i think it's perfectly understandable that african governments in we're now talking the resources space mainly try and promote local content that with you know local service providers uh, local procurement of of goods and services up to a point but then you know i, I have to say i know i'm going back to tanzania which you're very familiar with from your time at the world bank you 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 don't go to those extremes and start saying well you know you have to have and you have the same thing with the mining charter in South Africa. The, the, the local content requirements under the mining charter, so the latest version of the mining charter, mining charter three, quite frankly, I mean, are, and the mining industry said this, completely un, unachievable. I mean, effectively local content of, you know, 85% for, for, for goods and 90% and for services or the other way around, doesn't really matter, but completely unachievable. Why do I say that? Because if you look at all the heavy equipment which mining companies use, most of it's imported from the Far East, as you know. It's not locally manufactured. So all you're doing in that sort of local content arrangement is setting up a rent-seeking opportunity for somebody to have a distributorship for international equipment, bring the stuff in, and charge the mining companies more money for goods, for, for equipment, which they could normally import directly. And then they say it's local content, when of course it isn't. So I'm, I'm very skeptical about those sorts of arrangements, but I, I, I do think there's a really fair case to require sensible local content requirements, provided that you know the, the local economy can provide goods and services of an equivalent standard at a reasonable cost to the local industry. Because otherwise, if you don't do that, you're simply driving up the costs for the mining industry. You're making the industry less sustainable and less profitable. And that then has an effect on investment. And you start if you start making the local content environment so intrusive and difficult, you're simply not going to have any investment. And I, I think that will happen in countries which adopt these sorts of extreme measures. And, and just to, you know, next door to all of us, Zimbabwe. I mean, they, as you know, under President Mugabe, had this uh, indigenization policy uh, of um, Zimbabwean ownership, 51%, which clearly didn't work in the mining industry or anywhere else. And, you know, there are lots of issues in, in, in Zimbabwe now with a very difficult economy some people think is failing. But the one thing the Minangagwa administration did get right is that, that those policies have gone out the window. Indigenization is no longer a requirement in Zimbabwe simply to get investment into the country. Sure. So I'm thinking about the issue from a multinational corporation perspective. Multinationals thrive on diverse geographic footprint. And as a matter of fact, they play this to their advantage. So you could argue that local content goes directly contrary to the way 
mining companies think and that it weakens their ability for instance to raise finance because all of a sudden they are confined to individual jurisdictions do you see local content as strategically problematic for multinationals and perhaps a little less so for other companies no it it, it can be but you know i think multinational mining companies are very adaptable i mean the good ones and we know who we're talking about try to be good corporate citizens respect local content requirements and try to live with them what i'm really calling for sheila is a balance and what i'm saying is don't go the tanzanian route or frankly the south african route as we see in the mining charter on procurement because it doesn't work it makes life almost impossible for mining companies to comply with the new regime. And, uh, you know, from developing country perspective, it, it simply invites potential claims, as we talked about at the beginning, under, under a bilateral investment treaty and potential breaches of the Marrakesh Agreement, which established the World Trade Organization. So I, 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 I'm, I'm a great believer in balance. I mean, I, I think multinational mining companies can live with local content. They have lived with local content for a long time, it's not something new. What has happened though in the last 10 years under the African Mining Vision and led by countries like Tanzania and South Africa is that local content has become more and more intrusive and obtrusive. And if I can just go back to South Africa for a moment, I mean, I remember and I was involved in advising some of the companies on this. The original mining chart in South Africa was a, basically a tripartite compact between government, labor and business to deracialize the industry and put it on a you know much better footing in terms of really trying to develop a local social license to operate. And I mean, everyone bought into that. But what's happened over the years, and now we're in version three, is it's now become increasingly prescriptive. There's less and less investment, international investment in the industry in this country because the investment climate is now so complicated, the rules are so complex that it's very, I mean, the, the appetite for foreign investors to to invest here is, is simply not here. So you have the extraordinary situation where when I talk to investors in Canada, when I go to PDAC every year or in the US or the UK, they'd rather invest in, in a much more hazardous jurisdiction like the DRC, which doesn't have those local content, intrusive local content requirements. So I think at the end of the day, Sheila, and I think maybe that's the question you're asking me indirectly, capital is unsentimental it will go where it gets the best retort return true so one thing that i've always had trouble with peter is the notion of a policy or a legislation that wants to drive local content and starts off by saying you must achieve this percentage quantum for two reasons one I empathize because as they say in management, that which isn't measured isn't done. So when you put a percentage quantum or any figure for that matter, you create a benchmark against which you can assess performance. So just in terms of the practicalities, it makes sense. Where I have difficulty with it is that I often wonder how we arrive at that percentage. And, and I wanted to hear from you, for instance, in South Africa, when they said 80% of this and that, how do we get to that figure in the first instance? Well, it's a very good question. I'm afraid I'm the wrong person. We have to ask the, the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy because I have absolutely no idea how they came up with those figures. They certainly, I can tell you, that I know is a fact, they certainly never, they had lots of discussions with the Minerals Council, which represents the industry here, but the, the industry never agreed with those figures. I have no idea where 
how the Department of Mineral Resources came up with those figures. And it's the same thing I certainly know in Tanzania. It's just something that the ministry, uh, the mines ministry in Tanzania and the minister and the government, the cabinet came up with as part of the reform of the mining law back in 2017. So I, I don't know where these governments get these figures from, how they dream them up and you know whether they actually ever think you know what impact is this going to have on investment what impact is it going to have on supply chains i mean you know south africa now is really and i'm, I'm talking more broadly grappling with a very serious economic crisis where economic growth is has gone out the window we're i mean been in and out of various technical recessions quarter two growth went down by 21 percent. so the government's answer part answer to this which i don't agree with either is that we now need to embrace localization which of course is a shorthand for local content but i mean you know uh, lots of economists have done work on this sheila and then that localization is sort of begging your neighbor i mean you know what about the supply chains what impact does that have on inflation can the local economy manufacture all these things at a reasonable cost or are you putting further costs on the productive economy which it simply cannot afford and, and obviously south africa can manufacture some things because this country is, is is much more industrialized than many other african countries but other things it needs to import so is the government now saying well you can't import these things and we're going to impose swinging tariffs on imports of course if they go down that route they're going to have a problem with the uh, world trade organization they're also going to have a problem with the european union because there's a free trade agreement called the economic partnership agreement between south africa and the eu so so here's my last question to you because often when we speak as policy advisors or uh, counselors of our clients we we often look inward when i think of this local content issue and all its challenges and, and uh, I guess, opportunities. The one thing that strikes me is that there's something not quite right with the assumption that all of the 53 member states can look inward and say, any and everything mm. must be made in my country. I see a contradiction also with the notion of NAPAT and free trade. I'm not sure how the countries reconcile this. And listen to you narrate the story of your country, South Africa. I'm reminded that if one travels to Ghana, if one travels to Tanzania, if one travels to Zambia, DRC, etc., the aircraft is full of miners from South Africa, and many of them are selling equipment made in South Africa in these countries. Yes, correct. What is South Africa's view on that? I mean, how does a country reinvent itself against others coming in, all the while growing? its own manufacturing base that needs to access other markets. Well, like, where it, is frankly, the balance it's, in this? Uh, it's an extremely good question to which I'd like, you know, the, 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 to which there's no obvious answer. But what I would say to you, I mean, of course, I mean, you take a country like Zambia, for example, which is landlocked close to both of us right now. I mean, it's hugely dependent not only on South African mining expertise, but as you correctly say, on South African mining equipment, which is worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year going into the country. And obviously that was affected by the pandemic when the borders all closed earlier this year and now have slowly reopened. But I mean, how does South Africa explain that? It wants to export into Zambia or other African countries which need mining equipment. But at the same time, it's saying, well, we need to localize everything. It's not good, frankly, Sheila, it 
is self-contradictory. It's not going to work. I have a very simple answer. And that, funny enough, the irony of all of this is the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, because once that is properly and fully enforced, South Africa will simply, in relation to other African countries, will simply not be able to do that because it's a, this is a, a, a multilateral plurilateral, whatever you want to call it, free trade agreement between all the countries of Africa. Unfortunately, Nigeria still has not ratified it, which is an issue because it's the biggest economy in Africa and, you know, a very serious player. But leave that aside for a moment. But South Africa is going to have to accept imports of goods and services in due course from other African countries, whether it likes it or not. So, I mean, you know, it, it's going to be a two-way or more than a two-way relationship. So I think the African Continental Free Trade Agreement is going to have a major impact on South Africa because at the moment, South Africa is exporting into Africa and importing very little from Africa, the rest of Africa. But we're coming to the end. So as a, a last question, I want to see if we can put our heads together, you and I, and solve the world's problems. So it, <laughs> so it seems to me, Peter, there's no perfect solution, but there must be some solution somewhere in between. And, and, and when I ponder this issue, the, the, in, invariably, I can't help thinking, why does the Airbus model not work? Wherein the Europeans said, okay, you take this part of the aircraft, I take this part of the aircraft, you, manu you manufacture this, you assemble, yeah. but in the end, why yeah. is part of the conversation in Africa not about looking at each of the 53 member states and saying, well, where is your strength? There is enough stock items and services in the mining, oil and gas industry for every country to have a, a yeah. share of the pie. Why is it easy to look inward and only think of a singular sovereign state and not say, let's share this pie? Am I, am I not even thinking the Airbus model might be the remedy? No, no, it's a very, very good question. Of course, it, you, I mean, you, you do have the answer. I think the answer is that a lot of African countries in the past have been very protectionist. Intra-African trade, as you know, is amongst the lowest in the world. Um, so compared with, and I'm not just saying the EU, but Latin America, where you have Mer the Mercosur agreement between literally half of Latin America, and then you have an agreement up in, in the Andes, uh, a free trade agreement. But uh, so, I mean, African countries have been very protectionist. They haven't been open to this sort of thing. But I do think the African Continental Free Trade Agreement is a game changer because sort of things you're talking about, whereas you say, I mean, the wings are manufactured in for Airbus. I think the wings are managed, manufactured in Toulouse and the engines in the UK or were, or hopefully will still be, um, and other parts, the tails somewhere else. It's exactly. I mean, that's exactly the Airbus model. And that's exactly, that's precisely what we in Africa should be looking for. But unfortunately, that has not been the case in the past. I think intra-African trade, something like 11%, it's certainly the lowest figure in the world in on, on, on a continent because each country's done their own thing. So I'm hoping that the free trade agreement next year will be a game changer. And that sort of inward protectionist thinking, which frankly is sort of Professor Robinson, a very famous economist, talked about beggar my neighbor, which is, I'm, you know, I think that's what many African countries have done in the past. I'm hoping that 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 the African continent free trade agreement does represent a new area of new era of Africa and that we'll see a much more open approach to trade in goods and services and indeed investment. That's wonderful. Well, it sounds to me like pragmatic as you are, 
and, and I have tried to be, the missing link is politics. And, and, and I think we are looking at this through the lens of commerce and trade uh, and missing the, the political aspect. And, and my next guest will hopefully help us with that. But for now, I want to take the moment and thank you for your time, Peter. I'm going to be looking out for this Africa Free Trade Agreement discussions. And once our masters have signed on the dotted line, I hope to invite you back to see what we learn and how this might help us going forward. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'll stay in touch. You're very welcome. It's great to speak to you. Much enjoyed it. Thanks, Sheila. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.